0: This is The Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The lack of clean water in places like Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi have made national headlines. But many black communities in the rural South are coping with a water crisis but they're not getting the media attention or resources to really fight it. What's happening
1: and what can we all do to help? Just starting at home, you know, making sure that you're drinking clean water or that you have access to water filters or your neighbors or your people that you care about. Just doing little things like that is how these things get better at the end of the day.
0: Black America's Water Crisis coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change.
1: Fighting for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Flint, Michigan has coped with contaminated water for the better part of a decade, and despite activism and legal action, the community has yet to be made whole. In the last year, the nation has been made aware of a water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, where residents often go weeks or months when the water supply is unfit to drink, cook, or clean with. But there are dozens of black communities across the rural South who have been coping with an ongoing water crisis, in some cases for generations. And unlike Flint and Jackson, they're suffering entirely in the shadows. Now, Capital B News, a media outlet focused on the black community, is trying to shed light on the issue with a multi-part series about African-Americans living without safe, reliable water. Joining us to talk about it is journalist Adam Mahoney, who is leading the project for Capital B. Adam Mahoney, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me. There have been headlines about Flint and Jackson, Mississippi. What are some of the other communities that are struggling with getting clean water? And, and you know, was there? Is, are they mostly
1: in the South? Is it the Midwest? Where are the other communities? Really, they're spread out all throughout the country. Our, our project specifically, though, focused on rural and semi-rural communities um, across Texas, Louisiana, and Tennessee. And the issues are, are widespread, which is something that we don't often hear about when we're thinking about drinking water issues. You've traveled to a
0: lot of these rural places to see the water crisis issue for yourself. For a lot of us, the concept of turning on a faucet and not only having something come out, but having it come out and be clear is something that we take for granted. So above and beyond just the psychological impact of like, hey, my water isn't clean. What kinds of problems have you seen people having when you're going to these these rural communities?
1: Not having access to water impacts nearly every facet of daily life, right? Um, when we think about, like you said, the psychological issues, mental health, but also physical health. Um, so it's connected to different things around kidney issues, mood, even anger. I I talked to some folks in Louisiana who connected, you know, their lack of access to clean water to gun violence issues in their community or educational attainment. Um, when we look at water contamination, uh, specifically lead poisoning, You know, we know from the childhood level that affects development and it's something you live with throughout your life. So if you were poisoned or received lead poisoning as a youth, it, it will impact you 40 years down the line. So this is something that you know has generational effects.
0: One of the things that I think is often a bit confusing for people when you think of these issues is also the expense. For example, if you do know your water isn't clean, you got to go out and buy bottled water. What are some of the immediate financial impacts on people when you don't have clean and reliable water in your community?
1: Having to purchase bottled water every day is definitely an added expense. Um, but even in a lot of these communities, you have that layered expense, but you're also paying for the the brown water coming you know through your pipes that you can't use. And in some communities, because of a, a law that was enacted in 1987 that kind of put the burden of water infrastructure on cities versus the federal government, in um, a lot of these places, particularly smaller cities, rural areas, local governments have kind of used like a predatory practice to fund their water system. So in Opelousas, Louisiana, which is I know a small town in, in, in central Louisiana of maybe about 15,000 folks. It's the third poorest city in Louisiana, which as folks may not know, uh, Louisiana is the second poorest city in the United States. So you know, this is one of the poorest places in the country. The The city government has used a practice of Disconnecting water lines after two weeks of mispayment, typically it's you know, usually about a month or so or even longer in most places, forcing residents to pay forty to fifty dollars on top of their bills to have their lines reconnected. So through public records requests, we were able to find that in that town of fifteen thousand people, since twenty eighteen, roughly like fifteen hundred households have had their water disconnected multiple times. So having to pay, you know, exorbitant fees to get brown water that they can't even use trickling through their pipes again.
0: There's an activist who you spoke to for your reporting, and they said that they want the rest of the country to stop thinking about this is just an environmental justice issue, but start thinking about it as
1: an act of violence. What did they mean by that? When we have the resources taken away from us that we literally need to survive, that's violent, right? Because it is leading to premature death in these communities. So when we, we typically think of violence, we do think of, you know, fast violence, like gun violence or, you know, things that lead to immediate negative health impacts. But the way that environmental injustices build up over someone's lifetime, that also contributes to premature death um, and, and needs to be looked at as something as serious as gun violence.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the clean water crisis with journalist Adam Mahoney. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Black America's clean water crisis with journalist Adam Mahoney of Capital B News. What does the lack of clean water do to local businesses, restaurants, fire departments, schools and other institutions? What's the impact of that across the community?
1: like we mentioned earlier, just adds on fees that folks don't normally think about. And when we're talking about schools, you know, specifically one of the communities that I visited in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and it's been battered by three hurricanes over the last three years, a winter snowstorm, all different kinds of uh, severe weather events, Folks were out of school for a long time because of these events. But once they got back in, they required people to bring their own drinking water and, and different things. Um, that's so that's for children. Their parents having to think about this on a you know a constant daily basis. Um, so so just different things like that. Not only is it an economic injustice, but does contribute to your mental health. Water
0: not being clean can happen from water sources. When you're
1: looking throughout the
0: South, the lack of clean water in many Black communities is a result of active dumping of toxic chemicals? Is it primarily an issue of a lack of infrastructure? Which do you think it leans more on in sort of explaining where this lack of clean water is coming from?
1: Yeah, in the the states we visited, we kind of broke it down into three major issues. So one definitely is, uh, you know, a lack of water infrastructure. And that's something That the federal government specifically has put a lot of focus on over the last two years, you know, making record amounts of money available, more than 50 billion dollars available to cities across the country, which is really only a drop in the bucket because a a 2018 federal government report found that it will cost 470 billion dollars to bring our drinking water infrastructure up to code over the next two decades. Uh, but it still will have, you know, deep impacts in these communities, you know, particularly in a place like Opelousas, like I mentioned before, where they haven't had their water plant upgraded since 1997, and it's needed improvements since then. But outside of infrastructure, you know, a big issue across the South is industrial dumping, is uh, water contamination from industrial sites. So, you know, in Texas and, and Louisiana, we have close to 150 chemical plants that dot the Gulf Coast. Um, They've been dumping toxins directly into waterways, rivers, and bayous for a century now. And because of that industry and then the economic benefits of having those plants there, right, have been in an ironic position where to put food on their table, they've often been the ones dumping the toxins into their water um, and causing the health issues down the line. I mean, in in addition to industrial dumping, we've also noticed the way that climate change has ramped up, you know, water issues in areas. So in Memphis, a place that at one point was known for having the cleanest and the sweetest water in all the United States, because it's actually the largest U.S. city to rely 100 percent on groundwater. Um, over the last two years, has had multiple boil water advisories, has had water pressure issues, and even faced the threat of water contamination because climate change has led to an influx of in groundwater levels. And then that's something that we're going to see all throughout the country.
0: A lot of these communities that you're covering, they have black leaders, they have black politicians but oftentimes those politicians, they don't have a large voting block in the state House. What are some local elected officials doing that you've been able to see in Louisiana, in Texas, in Mississippi? you know, is it their mayors? Is it their city council people? What are politicians actually trying to do about this issue?
1: They are put in a difficult situation because a lot of this work is about lobbying for federal government money, right? and and going through the grant process. Um, which makes receiving money in a small town very difficult. Once again, to use Opelousas that has a small government, they don't have someone that their entire job is dedicated to sending in federal you know, grant applications versus a place like Houston or any bigger city in the South. Um, so that makes receiving the money difficult. I definitely have seen local governments... Advocate for that funding, but there's still a disconnect in receiving it and then being able to use it on time. So with the, you know, billions of dollars that have been made available by the federal government over the last couple of years, there is a, a timeline on that. There's a timeframe where the funding you receive has to be used within a decade. So even in these cities um, that may have received funding, they still don't have the workplace, the workforce infrastructure, you know, to build out these things within time. So there's a lot of layers that makes, quote unquote, solving the crisis very difficult.
0: Recently, the Supreme Court basically gutted the Clean Water Act by limiting where the EPA can say that you can't build here and what kind of uh, permits you can get one way or another. Does that have an impact on any of these small communities? Is the fact that the Environmental Protection Agency as of right now, has less of an ability to limit industry or large businesses from moving here or there and, and having environmental impact, does that affect these communities? Or are they so far gone that the recent Supreme Court ruling doesn't mean anything?
1: I don't think the recent ruling has too much of an impact on, on the specific communities that we focused on in the South, throughout the Midwest, and, and going towards the, the Northeast, yes. But these <laughs> these issues are deeply embedded. Um, like like you mentioned and the money is is there it's just about getting it in and using it in time
0: we're going to take a short break and we come back more about black america's clean water crisis this is a word with jason johnson stay tuned
2: We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change.
1: Fighting for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the water crisis in black rural communities with Capital B journalist Adam Mahoney. You talk to a lot of folks who are fighting to get clean water in their communities. Who are one or two people that really stand out? Who are the people who you met where it's like, man, this lady is amazing, or this guy's been fighting this for 30 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is Deborah Ramirez, who is a, um, a retired woman living in Lake Charles, Louisiana. You know, she's been... And the environmental justice fight for most of her life, uh, whether, even, you know, before we had those terms, you know, to call it environmental justice, she grew up in a community called Mossville, which was a historically black freedman's town just outside of Lake Charles that was kind of basically wiped off the map by chemical plants over the last 50 and 60 years. And, and from a young age, she saw the ways that, you know, are industry particularly the fossil fuel industry devastated her community and all throughout Louisiana um but also you know contaminated her water and over the last 40 years you know she's been a very very vocal advocate in calling out the different injustices that she's seen it's you know she put her own life in you know the face of danger just a couple months ago um after ringing the alarm about an environmental injustice in her community she woke up with a brick through her window and these these are different things that you know A lot of folks don't know about, don't think about in terms of activism, particularly, you know, in smaller rural communities. And then, you know, I met a couple in in Opelousas, Eric and Mary Williams, um, who made the connection between gun violence and and water contamination, like I had mentioned to you earlier, which was something that was, you know, very unique to me and something that I think is is definitely important in the ways that we frame divestment, um, and, and violence in our communities. You know, because they do overlap and they, they are very in- intersectional um, and they add to the harm that folks are facing.
0: When a black community is in trouble, whether it's a rural, urban community, suburban community, um, whether it's about the environment or schools or police violence, there's often this sort of tug of war between people who are staying to fix the problem and everybody else who's like, let's get the hell out. And and in a small town, like getting the heck out, sometimes is very easy. I'll just move to the next town over. Right. Or sometimes it's really hard because I don't have a job. I have very limited resources one way or another. And when you're dealing with something like water, you have no idea when that problem is going to get fixed. Or if you can even trust the elected officials who come in and do you know, press tours and drink some water and say hey, it's fine. How has the leave versus stay and fight tension worked out in the places? Are you seeing these towns lose population? you know, and then investors come in and buy it all? Are you seeing people say, hey, I'm going to stick it out?
1: Like, what have you seen as far as as that when it comes to the impact of this water crisis? Yeah, it definitely depends on community to community. So in Lake Charles, we have seen a black exodus um, from Lake Charles. A lot of that was spurred by, the hurricanes of 2020 and 2021, but also the fact that it's just not that much of a livable place for folks. And we have seen, you know, warehousing industry and even chemical plants expand and buy out because of that. But in Beaumont, Texas, which is actually just over the border from Lake Charles, Um, it's kind of been the opposite. So we've had, you know, communities that are living on the fence line of refineries who are, you know, drinking brown water that they cannot move because the value of their property has sunk so much. You know, these are homes that at one point, you know, maybe were worth 60, 70, $80,000 that if you tried to sell them now, you would get 20 if you were lucky. So it's kind of forced folks to stay put, and accept the harm that they've been experiencing, which is, you know, obviously as an outsider looking in, very difficult to understand, but you know, people make active choices on how to live their lives with options that are afforded to them.
0: When you're looking at this idea of options that are afforded to them, it brings me back to when you were talking about those who see this impact in terms of violence, uh, in terms of of lack of investment local community. Hey, I can't go to this restaurant I can't have clean water. But one thing that's always really struck me about lack of clean water is the impact on children. Talk a little bit about that, the fact that clean water seems to have these specific long-term pernicious effects on education, and in particular, the education of little black boys and girls.
1: Yeah, that's why pollution is so pervasive, right? Because it's something that you know, from the moment that you experience it, it lives with you, you know, throughout the rest of your life, whether we're thinking about air pollution or water contamination. Um, there's been countless studies that have shown that educational outcomes decline in communities with water contamination with lead poisoning. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it, it impacts your, your cognitive development, your thought process. It impacts your mood. It, it leads to, you know, bouts of anger. So all of these things that we associate with black kids across the country and divested communities, sometimes it's being framed as a choice or um, a problem of parental um, guidance when really it's the environment around us. And it's a lot of these things that folks don't have control over um, and one are not even told about, don't understand throughout their entire lives.
0: For people who are just learning about this issue, what would you advise people do? How can they help these communities? How can they raise awareness? What If I'm listening right now and I'm like, this is terrible, what would you advise that I do?
1: The first step to me, you know, beyond learning about the issues is just tapping into groups that you see that are doing good work. Um, So we highlighted a couple in our reporting. Protect Our Aquifer, which is a group in Memphis, Tennessee, that's been working to make sure that the groundwater source there does not get contaminated, is always looking for, for outside help. And we have Black Millennials for Flint, which, you know, it started in Flint, obviously, during the Flint water crisis, but it is you know, spread across the country. Um, its founder, uh, Latresa Adams, is now on the White House's Environmental Justice Advisory Council, and they've you know lobbied to get federal level bills passed in regards to water contamination and, and lead contamination. Um, and they're also always looking for resources and support and folks to tap in across the country. But also, I think just starting at home too, and. You know, making sure that you are drinking clean water or that you have access to water filters or your neighbors or your people that you care about. Just doing little things like that at home is, is how these things get better at the end of the day.
0: Adam Mahoney is a journalist with Capital B News. Thanks so much for joining me today on A Word. Thanks for having me. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for word.